0: In this portion of WGTD's morning show, we are going to be exploring the notion of tyranny, how tyranny has played out through human history in many different places and in a number of different ways, but also how tyranny is something that almost always contains several elements that remain rather constant, uh, even across the centuries and across scenarios across the planet. There are certain things that are fundamental to a tyrant rising to power and remaining in power. And of course, in the minds of at least some, a recent American history includes what the author at one point calls an example of, or a lesson of tyranny averted. Uh, And whatever one thinks of, of former President Donald Trump and of those dramatic and disturbing events uh towards the very end of his term uh it certainly has raised uh new awareness about the whole notion of tyrants and tyranny and was former president trump a tyrant or an aspiring tyrant or a tyrant wannabe uh, or was his predecessor barack obama uh equally deserving of such a label there are plenty of people who uh have 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 made those charges and And thus, all kinds of different people, including some of our most revered presidents, including Abraham Lincoln, have been called tyrants by those who uh, perhaps uh, despised what they stood for or feared for what they might do. Well, all of this and more is explored in a really interesting new book called Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants and Citizens. The author of the book is uh, Andrew Fiala who is a professor of political philosophy, uh, ethics, and the philosophy of re- religion. And he is the director of the Center for Ethics at California State University in Fresno. And his new book uh, is published by Roman and Littlefield. And uh, it's a very interesting book that certainly got me thinking. And I'm really excited for the opportunity to speak with Professor Fiala about his book. Again, titled Tyranny from Plato to Trump fools, sycophants, and citizens. Uh, Andrew Fiala, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you for having me, glad to talk to you.
0: So is it a rather recent thing for you to be interested in and uh, examining the concept of of tyranny, or is this something that uh, is uh, a more recent interest uh, for you and springing out of recent events in our country?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm, a, a, as you said, a, a philosophy professor, professor of political philosophy, and Plato talked about tyranny, you know, hence the, the, the title of the book. I've been teaching about this indirectly for the last 25 years, because tyranny comes up in the heart of Plato's Republic. Uh, and in fact, Plato's Republic is sort of a response to tyranny, right? So it's one way to teach that book. So I've been teaching about this stuff for a long time and thinking about it, but um, it, it really becomes real when you see things in the news <laughs> that seem to remind you of some of this stuff you see, you're reading in Plato and Sophocles and elsewhere. So uh, I, I guess, you know, for me, I really got serious uh, in terms of thinking about this about five years ago, um, you know, when Trump is first running for office. Although, of course, even before that, you know, as you said in your introduction, the word tyranny is used all over the place. People accused Barack Obama of being a tyrant and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it's a perennial problem as, as you know, and if you're, if you're a philosophy professor, you're gonna have to talk about it at some point.
0: before we dig into some of those specifics, I wanna actually circle to uh, something that you talk about in the third chapter of the book that I just find really, really interesting. And it, it, I think it's partly to kind of describe the, the landscape or the scenario uh, out of which tyrants can rise. And um, it's, it's an interesting part of this chapter, uh, uh, the subheading of which is Tyranny Trump's Truth. And uh, you write this about uh, kind of the, the complicated history of not only our own country's political life, but uh, in other places as well. And uh, and you say this is all part of the messy world of freedom. Human beings mix things up. We play games. We manipulate. We forge alliances. Some strive for power. Others poke holes in the powerful. Some get lucky and suck up to the eventual winner. Others hitch their wagons to losers. There are risks and gambles aplenty in human life. And most of the time, the masses have no idea what is really going on. They or we jump on bandwagons. We are persuaded by lies and easily seduced by appealing images. That is the way that freedom works itself out in the messy world of democratic politics. It's so interesting to kind of have that all spelled out and we realize that, yes, that's something that on some level we're all aware of, and yet it doesn't always get talked about in, in quite those terms. Explain why that really colorful, vivid description uh, has a place in this book about tyranny, why it is such an essential thing for us to understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for sharing that passage. Um, it, you know, in terms of the messiness, uh, it, human nature has always been messy, right? So. Uh, this is a pro- this, the same issue afflicted the Greeks, the Romans suffered through it. The American revolutionaries were in the middle of it. You know, we're, we're still in the middle of a world in which um, partisan politics plays itself out. Self-interest manifests itself in political life. Um, and then, you know, truth is manipulated, right? So that, you know, that passage where, you know, the, the where tyranny trumps truth like that idea. Um, ever since the time of Socrates, there's been a a politicized question about what's true, right? So a story was told about Socrates, that he corrupted the youth. Um, He thought he was a good guy, (laughs) and Plato certainly admired him, and the Athenians actually ended up killing Socrates, uh, because they were persuaded by that lie that he was a corrupter of the youth. So, you know, from, and you could go in the history of Christianity, the same thing holds, you know, with, the crucifixion of Christ. We're coming up on Easter, right? We, we think about the same kind of story that plays itself out. Human beings are um, uh, are imperfect. Power shows up. Truth gets manipulated, and for the most part, we don't know what's going on, <laughs> right? Right in the middle of it, and you you saw this during the Trump years, right? Where you know lies get thrown around, and you know Washington Post or whoever is trying to do fact checking but even the fact checking gets politicized Um, and an ordinary voter, an ordinary citizen, even an ordinary philosophy professor, like we don't know what to think about a lot of this stuff. Um, And, and you know, last thing about um, how freedom manifests itself is, you know, I think this is just the way human nature works. If someone says that it's white, someone else will say that it's black. Um, And they do it out of a sense of, um, you know, their own, need to just poke holes in the powerful, their own need to say the opposite of what's uh, com- taken for common knowledge. We've seen this during the pandemic, right? The, the anti-mac- anti-masking, anti-vax stuff is another manifestation of this. Um, uh, and as it's true throughout history, it's a real mess, <laughs> right? So what we try to do in philosophy land is we try to, I don't know, find ways to clarify that um, and try to avoid the messiness, but the messiness persists just human nature,
0: right? It's probably unavoidable. And I suppose, in a sense, although I don't know that you're setting out to offer us comfort, but I find something at least somewhat comforting, in knowing that certainly not in every detail, but a lot of what we have faced and experienced in terms of the turbulence of, of our own country at the moment, uh, that it's not as unprecedented as we are maybe tempted to say and that in fact, uh, in some respects at least, we've been sort of down this road countless times before. Uh, do you find that oddly comforting as well? Yeah, yeah no, I, I
1: think that helps. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, that we need literature and the humanities and, and the arts and philosophy and history. Um, it, it helps to know that other human beings have suffered through the same things we've suffered through or that we are suffering through. Um, it doesn't make it go away, <laughs> right? But there are models and there are paradigms and examples. and you know when you when you can study the humanities and read literature and, and study philosophy, you start to realize that, oh, okay, these things happen. You start to see common patterns of that, that are cures or remedies for this, right? So there are kind of perennial remedies for these things. Um, and, and there's a kind of solidarity in human suffering, right? We're, we're, not, we're not the only ones going through these things. Um, you know, I, I, again, as a teacher of the humanities and, and, and literature and philosophy, students don't know this, however, right? So the 18-year-olds, the 20-year-olds who take my classes, they're surprised to learn that these things happen through the course of history. Um, and you know, and part of the, the purpose of the book also is to remind people about this and then when I, when I talk this over with students, they're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I thought we were special and unique. Mm. <laughs> um, so you deflate our own, you know, deflate the kind of um, egoism of the present moment in a sense, right? We're not as unique as we think. Um, and I just would, would throw in here, and yet we can make progress. So there, there's a, there can be a kind of pessimism or cynicism about history that you know, we don't make any progress, but I think we can make progress
0: right and of course it we should all we should probably hasten to add that there are things playing out at the moment that for instance were not a part of the turbulence of ancient Greece I mean ancient Greece didn't have Facebook for instance or yes. uh or other tools for the dissemination of information and especially misinformation or disinformation and so there are ways in which this plays out in different ways maybe with a new rapidity that's kind of scary mm-hmm uh but at its heart we're talking about issues that are in a sense fundamental to the human condition kind of a brokenness of the human condition that is why we see the resurgence again and again of 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 tyrants yeah yeah
1: tyrants. no and I, and I think um you know this uh tyranny is a tendency of the human soul you know i, I try to i i point out that there's a uh, you know, it's not just a political thing. It's a psychological, a spiritual, a soul problem. And that's true for the sycophants and the fools also, right? We can all be tyrannical from time to time. Our colleagues in business can be tyrannical. We have tyrannical people in our families, right? So that, that, that's something that's just there in our, in our nature. And we can also be sycophants. We can suck up to the powerful. We can flatter the powerful and then sometimes we're just dumb, <laughs> you know, all of us. Again, I'm not, I'm not exempting myself from this. This is a tendency that we all have. And I think one reason why it's important to bring this out and to talk about it and think about it is so we can resist it. Right. So, you know, one way to resist tyranny is to point out, you know, see it when it happens and then recognize that, that there are certain things that lead to it and certain things that can prevent it. And the same is true of our own foolishness, right. Um, you know we fake news or whatever, whatever you want to talk about here, people uh, are easily seduced by easy answers and um, cliches and so on. Uh, Again, it's part of human nature. It always has been, but we can resist it somewhat.
0: Before we go any further, I want to be sure to ask you about uh, your, your academic discipline of philosophy and, and ask you, what do you think it is that your discipline has to offer to this problem to this quandary uh that we can't find for instance from the realm of political science or or or, or, or other disciplines as well what is a, what is it about philosophy and philosophers like yourself uh in terms of the particular perspective you can bring that might be uh especially Helpful and welcome here.
1: Wow, that's a great question, Greg. Thank you for, for asking that. Um, you know, um, uh, philosophy is often misunderstood, right? So, you know, what we do most of the time is, is ask questions that lead to more questions, right? So, you know, anyone taking take an undergraduate philosophy class, you know, they come in, you know, is there a God, is there a soul? It's, I mean, all these big questions. Um, and that questioning method Another word there is wonder, right? The the standpoint of wonder to 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 view things from the standpoint of wonder. I believe that's hugely important. I think it's 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 the the cure for all of this stuff, right? If we if we had more questions and and wondered more, we'd probably uh, be a lot better off. Now, one difference is that you know the empirical folks, my friends in sociology and political science, and you know people that I know that are historians. Um, they're sometimes nervous about asking normative questions. They're sometimes reluctant to to ask about, well, what should we do then? What ought we do then? Mm. Um, You know, this question of the ought and the should. And philosophers are happy using that language. We always have been. You know, this Plato, he's, he's prescriptive. Like he has an agenda for what would make the world better. So I think that's sometimes missing in the empirical sciences. And then I think the last bit about this is... Philosophers also want to make connections between the spiritual and the political, between the psychological and the sociological, between art and history. You know, I mean, like everything's on the table here, which is kind of why I think my book is kind of fun, <laughs> right? Because we got Shakespeare in there, we got Sophocles, we got Plato, we got some um, constitutional history. You know, we, we're trying to, trying to weave it all together in a sense. Um, and a lot of my my colleagues in the uh, you know the harder you know social sciences or whatever like they don't want to do that sometimes it just seems like you're biting off too much but somebody has to do it right somebody has to try to make the connection so anyway I think that's kind of what we offer in the philosophy side of things
0: for those of you just joining us I'm speaking with Andrew Fiala about his book Tyranny from Plato to Trump Fools Sycophants and Citizens. Uh, the book takes a long view, historical view of tyrants through history, the rise of tyrants, the fall of tyrants, and uh, in a sense, uh, the conditions that allow tyrants uh, to rise to prominence. And in a sense, the elements beyond the tyrant themselves that uh, make their rise to power uh, and their their ability to remain in power uh, possible. I just want to circle back to former President Trump again, only because you know, you've know you chosen to place his name in the subtitle of your book, uh, but you repeatedly say in the book, Trump, Donald Trump was not a tyrant. Uh, Donald Trump is not a tyrant. <laughs> uh, he might be other things sort of adjacent to it or related to it, but, but Donald Trump was not a tyrant. Um, I'm just curious you say that repeatedly in the book it's obviously a point you think is critical to make to your readers uh what is so critical about that particular statement
1: yeah thanks for asking that question that's i think very important um so some of my friends my colleagues people i know and respect sort of wanted to rush to the nth degree of condemnation of trump right to you know the word fascism showed up in discussions of trump the word tyranny showed up in discussions of Trump, um, and I'm nervous about that 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 um, rush to like the worst case scenario. Uh, and one reason I'm I'm nervous about that is that if there is a tyrant, then in a sense the response to tyranny <coughs> can often be violence, right? That some kind of a call for violence, um, you know. And, and I <coughs> I've talked to people who are like, yeah, well, you know, violence is the solution it's not. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, that's the last gasp of a solution to uh, a political problem or a family problem or a business problem, right? Um, so I, I, I'm sort of, the book in a sense is a corrective to people that want to rush to that worst case scenario. And I think, you know, another part of this is, um, and by the way, I think Trump tends towards tyranny, right, that you, I think you used the language of wannabe tyrant in your introduction. Um, I say he's a would-be <clears throat> tyrant in a sense, but the, 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 the would-be-ness of it, the, the wannabe nature of it can be re- reassuring, right, because our systems worked to prevent Trump from becoming a tyrant, tyranny averted, as I say. And that's a great reminder of the resilience of our system, the importance of the Constitution, and so on. And I think, you know, there, there's, a, there's a worry that when people say, well, now we've got a tyrant, I mean, Civil War follows from that kind of language, right? This was the language that the South used against Abraham Lincoln. Um, and thank goodness we're not there. Uh, and I think we, we need to resist those people that want to like through hyperbole and exaggeration kind of want to push us towards the brink and towards violence. Let's be more careful with our language, right? Let's let's calm down and think a little more carefully about this.
0: And that's so ironic because of course you're talking about language as a tool that's used by would be or want to be tyrants and that's how they uh, appeal to the masses. And of course we see people uh, in opposition to tyrants and would be tyrants tempted to use the same tools in the same way. Uh, Speaking of terms and terminology, uh, I think one thing that is helpful in your book is you, you clarify for us what it, what it really means to be a tyrant, because, uh, I think for a lot of us, we assume that a tyrant is somebody who essentially possesses all but unlimited power. And, uh, your book clarifies that that really isn't the whole picture. Uh, and that to be a tyrant in kind of the richest, most complete sense of the word involves a lot more than possession of absolute power. I guess part of that is that at least theoretically one might possess absolute power and yet not act in a way that is tyrannical, although it 's hard to imagine very many human beings being willing to to uh with uh withstand the, the the temptation how do you want us to understand the term temptation beyond this notion of absolute power
1: yeah so the um yeah very important right so there it's one thing to possess power it's the second question about how you use power and then third how do you conceive yourself in relation to power right that's one way of fleshing this out And, you know, there is such a thing in the history of political philosophy as a benevolent despot. This is actually Plato's innovation, right? Plato thinks that there should be a philosopher king in charge of the world. And he would, the philosopher king would reorganize reality according to a vision of the good, right? Very idealistic, utopian idea. You know, we don't believe that anymore. I don't even think Plato actually believed that himself. I think he might have been a bit ironic in claiming so, but, you know, it's possible to imagine a good guy who has absolute power who does the right thing, right? So that's not a tyrant. A tyrant is a bad guy who possesses absolute power. And furthermore, that bad guy believes that law and morality are just not objectively true, right? That the, the, the tyrant believes that law and morality are all about power and self-interest. And the tyrant wants to rule not for the well-being of anyone other than himself, right? that it's, it's a narcissistic, egomaniacal, self-aggrandizing vision. That, and really in, in the history of, you know, the 2,500-year the um, history of the West, that's really the essence of tyranny, is that it's the word there is hubris, right? You may remember that, you know, people might remember that from their 11th grade English class when you read uh, Sophocles' play Oedipus the Tyrant, Oedipus Rex. Hubris is the problem. And hubris, this Greek word, means arrogance, pride, insolence, uh, overweening pride is one way that it's described, right? It's like pride that knows no limits. And my last claim I make in the book is that, you know, the tyrant views himself as God, so there's a God problem in all of this, right? The, the tyrant thinks that the solution to his life, because it's always about him, will be if he could amass power to the extent that he has godlike power, and that, that to me is just obviously wrong, right? So again, the normative element comes in. The, the tyrant has a, a, a pernicious theology, misunderstanding of his own psychology, and a misunderstanding of God himself.
0: Hmm. And of course, if intentions and motivation are an essential key to whether or not a given person is a tyrant or tyrannical uh no wonder it's a bit subjective because of course one can mask one's own intentions or motivations one can be ignorant of them in yourself i suppose i mean you can tell yourself a lot of lies about why you want to be president or why you want to be ceo of a company or whatever and uh and in many cases our, our capacity to be dishonest with ourselves uh is equal to our capacity to be dishonest to others
1: no i you're right about that um it, it's once we, i mean when we're in this realm of the dystopian you know reality of of things going wrong there's a whole bunch of lying and and delusion um self-deception all this is is occurring in this realm of things right um so let, let's go back i mean Again, how back to Trump is Trump a tyrant? I don't know the man, right? I've never met him. It's it's very difficult to peer into someone's soul. It's even hard to peer into your own soul, as you as you say. I mean, I really don't know Trump's motivations, right? I I, but (laughs) there are signs, right? So one of the things I did, and shows up in an appendix to the book, is I went through. Trump's writings, The Art of the Deal, and some, you know, some of his other campaign books. And I looked, I did a content analysis of his Twitter feed. And I looked for, I, I was, I was hoping to find some moral language, right? What does Donald Trump say about ethics or morality? And it turns out, he doesn't say anything about ethics or morality. It's all any, if he uses words like value, or, you know, good or something it always has to do with real estate or money, or, you know, it's a Uh, economic value, market value. This is so different from other presidents that we've witnessed, right? You look at Barack Obama's rise, you look at George W. Bush, I mean, to be bipartisan about this, right? You go back to John F. Kennedy, to Abraham Lincoln, to Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington. These folks had deep moral vocabulary. They always talked about morality in a, in, a, in a profound, soul-searching sense. And this is different for Trump, which I think is the, the uniqueness of
0: him. One other question about uh, former President Trump. Uh, you say about him at one point, and again, it is in drawing contrast to his immediate predecessors, Barack Obama and George W. Bush. You said Trump was different. One of Donald Trump's greatest flaws is that he is morally illiterate and ethically inarticulate. Uh, Is that just another way of saying what you were saying about what we don't find when we, for instance, read his speeches or look at his Twitter feed? Uh, I'm especially uh, curious uh, just to know what's behind those words.
1: Well, uh, here's another thing is, I mean, this in terms of moral illiteracy, right? That way of of conceiving it. you have to ask yourself, what books does Donald Trump read and cite, right? What, what, where, what is the, the theoretical grounding in the humanities and, you know, in our tradition? That to me is very unclear when it comes to President Trump. Like, what, I, I'm, I'm not sure that he's a reader <laughs> in the tradition, right? You no, know, it's very interesting in terms of contrast, right? Um, Barack Obama and Bush too, if I recall they used to publish like their summer reading lists. Like what books are they going to read during the summer? Right. Uh, For a scholar in the humanities, that's, that was always like, Oh, cool. They're reading some good books. Did they really read them? I don't know, Mm -hmm. but they want to talk about books and ideas, you know, and the arguments that are that, I mean, again, whatever you think about Obama or Bush, the arguments that they make, there's a recognition that the history of the humanities matters, that philosophy matters, that, you know, understanding the Constitution and its history matters, right? I'm, sh- I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive that Obama and Bush worked their way through the Federalist Papers at some point, right? Thinking about, you know, what what were the framers' issues with regard to tyranny and the Constitution? With President Trump, I'm just not so sure about that. I don't see any evidence that, you know, that he was engaged in that kind of inquiry. And again, I think that's very important, right? This self-examination through literature, art, and humanities, and history. Um, that grounds things in a way. And it creates a vocabulary, again, a common vocabulary for the rest of us. So, now, you know, have conversations with us about these
0: things. Are you saying that this is something that we commonly see in tyrants or or would-be tyrants, aspiring tyrants, so to speak, through history? I mean, do we see, Is is this a capacity or characteristic that Many of them share this kind of disinterest in, in, in this field.
1: That's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I so, you know, you go back to the paradigm, which, in, again, in Plato, right, the, the character out of, I mean, it's maybe too much detail. But, you know, there were a couple of these characters in the ancient world. Alcibiades is one. Alexander the Great is another. Um, now, Alexander is an interesting Character, because we know that Aristotle was his teacher. <laughs> yeah. So there's maybe, you know, maybe Aristotle was doing this. But then I'm thinking of Nero, for example, the Roman Emperor Nero, who's, you know, almost everyone agrees he's a, a crazy tyrant. Um, Nero created a world around him. He also was engaged with the philosopher Seneca, but it's not clear that Seneca had any influence on Nero. And the same is true with Alexander and um, Aristotle. You know, how, how 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 well did they study <laughs> the, the philosophers that they were talking with? so then fast forward to Marcus Aurelius, who I am a big fan of Marcus Aurelius, the you know the emperor philosopher of ancient Rome. Marcus Aurelius has a depth of soul, and you see it in his writings, right? If you ever have a chance to read Marcus Aurelius's um, meditations, there tran- translated as meditation. This man read literature and philosophy and you you, you could see it, you can kind of feel it in his worldview. Um, Go fast forward to our founders, right? Thomas Jefferson and these important figures in our history, they had vast libraries, right? They were collecting ancient texts and reading them in the original languages. Um, The good guys in history, I think, tend to study literature, philosophy, the humanities, read poetry, read religious texts, you know? The bad guys don't. Uh, you know, I mean, we have to do some, you know, we could get a nice uh, study here, get a political scientist or a historian to actually dig into the details. But I think that's a, a truth. I think that is a truth.
0: We're speaking with Andrew Fiala about his book, Tyranny, From Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. Um, it's important for us to uh, clarify one thing about your book, that your book is not just about uh, those people who we have called Tyrants or aspiring tyrants, but your book is actually almost more than that about the so-called tragic trio, which consists of the tyrant themselves, the sycophants, who in a sense serve them, and then uh, what you call at one point, the moronic masses, the morons. And uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to clarify where this term comes from, because Uh, I mean, at a careless glance, it seems like you're saying, and all the people, ordinary people who follow a tyrant are stupid. And uh, that's really not what you're saying here. And you're not using the term in that way. Uh, What are you drawing upon with this kind of terminology?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this this, you know, this tragic trio, this, I think, is kind of my unique contribution to this conversation about tyranny. Tyrants are not alone, right They have their sycophantic supporters, and then the mob, and the mob comes along with them. so let, let me just jump to that moronic claim because it's 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 a you know a little bit cheeky right to to say, well the, the moronic mob um, the alliteration sounds good to, to begin with, but this this is not me saying this. this is Plato saying this, right Plato said that the mob, the masses we're moronic, we're stupid, we're uninformed. Um, at one point he calls the masses, the wild beast, right? The, 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 the unruly mob. Um, and by the way, I'm trying to say also, this is not unique to any particular mob. So it's not the Trump mob, it's not the Obama mob, right? Any of us, when we are engaged in sort of mass movements, when we're, when we're part of the mob, we become moronic in this kind of technical sense. It, that word actually has a Greek root and in Greek moros means like blindness, mm. like the inability to see and it's it's not um, physiological, it's spiritual it's intellectual right And in, in many of the ancient texts it's kind of willful blindness. So beautiful example of this in um, Sophocles in Antigone and, and Oedipus Rex, these two texts, the word shows up in a couple of places and the claim is made that the tyrant is blind. If you, if you know the story, there's a blind prophet who shows up Tiresias, the blind prophet, he shows up and he's trying to enlighten the, the tyrant. And he says to the tyrant, you're blind. And the tyrant says to him, no, you're blind. Right. So there's a big question about blindness. And we all suffer from this tendency, right? So I think the, 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 Martin Luther King called it conscientious blindness or conscientious stupidity, right? When we turn away from moral judgment, when we sort of just turn off the lights and flow along with the crowd, we're being moronic in that sense. Um, and again, we can all, we all do it. I do it. You know, at the end of the day, sometimes I just, you know, want to have a glass of wine and turn on Netflix. and I don't want to think anymore. Um, and then you think what happens when, when that happens is that we're no longer thinking critically about what's true or what's false. We're no longer um, thinking about whose interests are being served, and so on. Um, it, it's a, it's a. I, at one point, I call it an unhandsome tendency. Right, it's something that we do that that well, we shouldn't be proud of.
0: <laughs> one of the things you talk about in your book, when it comes to the masses, the so-called moronic masses, is that and you've just briefly touched on this just now is that there's more than one kind of blindness or another way to say it there's more than one kind of ignorance and that sometimes it is just kind of a natural well-earned sort of ignorance or blindness and that it and then in other cases it's a much more kind of self-serving and conscious blindness or ignorance that one chooses in a sense, for the pleasure of it and maybe for what one hopes to gain from it. But that's really interesting because I think most of us, when we think about this, don't think about it having, in a sense, different types or different varieties.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, also what happens in this, you know, for the masses, the mob, um, there's also just an interest in amusement that, and, and this, this spreads over into violence. This is why it's very, quite dangerous, right? So An example I thought about in the book is the lynch mob, right? That word mob shows up with regard to lynching, the lynch mob. What is the lynch mob? These are the people who show up to the lynching and cheer on the killing of a human being, right? And you've seen these gruesome pictures where, you know, little kids with their parents, with their fingers pointing at the person hanging from the tree. It's appalling and embarrassing that human beings behave this way, right? But It makes sense, right? That the mob—they're not thinking anymore; they're just inflamed by passion and desire. And often, the mob cheers on the dumbest things, right? So, like when people start—you know, been at a football game or whatever—and the—I've been to games in Wisconsin, by the way—and the students in the Wisconsin, you know, they—they swear at each other across the stadium. You—you probably witnessed this. Oh yeah. And everyone's having a great time, (laughs) you know—they're—they're swearing at each other and well okay that's that kind of mob behavior it happens all the time right and we 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 enjoy it which is very strange but we should also be critical of it because that is what leads then to uh, for us to cheer on people who should not be cheered on um, and the mob doesn't make moral distinctions right it just cheers and jeers yells and screams and it's having a great time <laughs> ugly ugly tendency in human nature
0: absolutely and of course uh the sycophants that you talk about uh, in your book uh are, are are have their own kind of ugliness or unattractiveness of course for sure and and in some ways it's even worse because you know, in many cases we're talking about sycophants who who should know better i mean who can't claim kind of common everyday ignorance uh to do what they do and of course they're being very conscious in terms of of uh, making their alliances with somebody that they think is going to be of a of, of benefit to them uh are there different types of sycophants as well is that at all a complicated thing or is it as simple as it sounds
1: well you know the the sycophant the go-between in a sense between the mob and the tyrant um his job it's almost always a he but it could be a she but his job is is pretty tricky right So the sycophant has to talk in different registers to different audiences, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, when, you know, getting the mob ginned up and excited, you know, I have to go in and use slogans and cheer, you know, leave the mob in it's cheering and then has to use legal arguments, you know, whisper in the ear of the tyrant. And then the sycophants are also vying for power among themselves right? There's a question of who can suck up the most. <laughs> and again, it's not only political problems. This happens at work. This happens in families, right? Um, and wh- I use a, a couple of phrases to describe this. It's opportunism, right? Opportunistic and even contortionism, right? So the, the sycophant is clever with language and knows how to speak in different keys to different people. Code switching some way. Sometimes people talk about this Um, it's it's a pretty complicated cognitive task (laughs) that's happening for the sycophant the tyrant all the tyrant needs to do is you know bluster and you know i'm going to take charge and the mob just cheers but the sycophant has a lot of work to do and at the end of the day you know when things are fixed it's often the sycophant that's left holding the bag right so the tyrant can sometimes escape right move to you know, Napoleon on Elba or something, right? Move out of town and the sycophants are left behind and they often get punished um, because the mob turns against them quickly.
0: Hmm. You uh, at one point talk about the contortionism that many sycophants have to demonstrate or display. And, and that's yet another, I suppose maybe that's another way of talking about what you were just saying that they play different roles, but of course, the other thing is sometimes a sycophant uh, might be a former adversary who finds their way to contort themselves into suddenly being a supporter of a would be tyrant. And that's something that plays out quite often. Yeah. That's a complicated thing as well to do convincingly.
1: Well, when you, you know, yeah, this happens. You look at the Trump years again. So some of Trump's opponents in the 2016 election who he bullied and belittled, Ted Cruz, uh, some other people come to mind. And then next thing you know, they're the the greatest defenders of of Donald Trump, right? It's a a tendency of uh, politics, and again, not only politics, but in political life, right? Winners pull the sycophants along with them. And then at some point they're vying for power, But then somebody wins and somebody loses. And if you want to stay relevant, as they say, right, if you want to stay relevant, you're going to need to play the game that now the person in power is playing. Um, You know, (laughs) for, for someone who's an academic, we see this in the academic world, but I just wonder sometimes, like, How could you stand it (laughs) you know drive you nuts to try to keep track of who's in and who's out and try to you know play the game to to make sure you're on the right side of power all the time and meanwhile in the background the mob could vote you out so you also have to play that game in your own district and so on it's a it's a complicated juggling act um you know the philosopher wants to say why why do all that juggling let's just tell the truth be good you know, try to defend justice, um, you know, do our best to have integrity and, and consistency and coherence in our life and our souls. But that's not the political game.
0: Right. right. I was just going to say, no. forget the game that forget this exhausting and ultimately counterproductive game. Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> one, of the, one of the uh, things you talk about in your book in terms of, of, of what we need to do to help safeguard against the rise of, of, of more tyrants, um, is something that you call at one point, I think, in the book, a kind of midwife. We need a certain kind of midwife uh, to kind of help us on kind of, I guess, maybe the moral or ethical plane of all of this. Explain the terminology you're using there and what you have in mind.
1: Yeah, so that's a a passage from Plato, again. So, you know, Plato describes Socrates as a midwife. So philosophy is a a way of giving birth to wisdom and virtue. Um, And what that midwife does, what Socrates does or the philosopher does, is open our eyes to truth and goodness, to virtue and reality. Because, again, back to blindness, most of us are blind most of the time, right? Um, so we need moral educators. And the, the, the midwife metaphor is, is, you know, th- just think what that means. The midwife doesn't do the birthing, right? The midwife just accompanies and facilitates mm-hmm. the birthing. So the birthing has to happen within, right? You have to give birth to virtue and, and find truth yourself. The philosophical midwife can accompany you, can hold your hand, can kind of point you in the right direction, give you some breathing exercises or whatever, but that birthing process has to happen within the individual. Um, and it's not easy again, right? So that's why it helps to have accompaniment. And you know, just let me, let me throw in there back you know, something we mentioned earlier. Part of that accompaniment is literature and history and philosophy, right? When we, when in our journey to become wise, right, when we can look at good models and we can look at bad models and learn from them. Again, I think that's, that's part of that midwife exercise, right? Keep, keeps us uh, on the right path and gives us companionship as we're trying to, to live better.
0: So as the author of this book, are you such a midwife?
1: <laughs> well, one could hope, right? Um, you know, I, I don't want to be—I don't want to presume that I can, you know, open anyone's eyes. It's just that you, you try, right? So that's like this book is hopefully part of that. You know, that's actually that—that that thing about the midwife. That's the, the opening quote at the begin—very beginning, of You know, the epilogue for the book is: um, we want to—I want people to become wiser, um, and that's why you know I'm a teacher. That you know, my philosophy professor. That's—that's that's the hope. Um, But again, you can lead a horse to water kind of thing, right? Like there's no guarantees.
0: It's up to the rest of us to drink. So I think the quote you're talking about is, philosophy is the midwife of wisdom. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I certainly appreciated your book for all that it got me thinking about and uh, certainly opened my eyes to uh, think about some of these questions, particularly beyond kind of the immediate moment, this highly charged moment in which we we find ourselves living and uh, I'm, I'm appreciative for that and everything else that you you share in this book. Again, it's titled Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants and Citizens, published by Roman and Littlefield and the author, uh, Andrew Fialo. Professor Fiala, I really do appreciate the opportunity to speak with you about your really, really interesting book. Thank you so much.
1: Greg, thank you very much. What a great conversation we've had. I appreciate it.